turn again in your, your scriptures, in God's word, to the book, this little book, I think it's the fifth of the twelve minor, not that they're of minor importance, but in size, the minor prophets, the book of Jonah, right after Obadiah and right before Micah, two little pages in your Bible, and there this amazing book, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is what we call a miniature masterpiece and such needful for us in our very day. It speaks to us as we look uh, at this little masterpiece uh, a couple weeks ago. And as we looked into it, we saw that it's really divided into two parts. And last time we looked at it, we had that element of what we coined the expression that we have one who is the anti-grace prophet Jonah, strange uh, prophet that he was, and at the same time we had those, wow, awesome grace sailors that came to believe on the God of Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah, the true and living God. And then we rejoiced at the very end of chapter 2 with that, uh, that, what we might call the Amazing grace, shout, salvation is of the Lord. And that very essence of what the whole of the Bible is about, salvation is of the Lord. We come to this second part that almost seems like, uh, you know, here he's come to see this salvation is of the Lord, and what more could you have? And yet there was work that needed to be done on Jonah's life on his experience of that salvation is of the Lord. There was something that needed to happen to him yet in his life. He needed to experience the compassion of the Lord. He needed to experience God's amazing control of all of life and that there was a message to go across all lands. And so as we look at this amazing miniature masterpiece, we have something here that there's a need for him to understand uh, who God was. When he spoke with the sailors, he said his God was the God who created the God of the, the seas and the land. He is the God of all creation. So we come with that question afresh, who is God? In fact, if we don't know who God is, we'll always have everything else out of focus. We won't see It'll be blurry. It won't be right, right way around. We'll have things twisted and out of focus. We need to know who God is. That's the fundamental element of the whole of Scripture. And we need to realize God's control. Yes, there's something ringing in my ears of that old song. He's got the whole world in his hands. And that's reality. God's control of all things. If you read through in less than 10 minutes, read through this book out loud, you'll find that all these little details are there. Even the word of God comes to Jonah. It's God who initiates it all. It's God who, as you go through this, it's God that's made plain who he is in all of creation. We read in Romans what may be known about God is plain to them. God has made it plain. And then it tells us that they, what they do, they suppress the truth. 
Man can see these things, but he sees the very things that show us who God is, and he suppresses that truth. He denies God's wonderful presence in all of creation. And so there's that sense in which when you go through this, there is that reality that God is God. He holds all things together by the word of his power. He is present at every molecule of existence. He is God. Without him, everything would fly apart. So we begin with God's control. And knowing who God is, we might ask, what did Jonah know? You remember Jonah chapter 4, verse 2 is quite wonderful of what it says about God. It says here, as we look at verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That, that is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He had a right understanding of who God is. He had it right. So as you go through this, there's something that he had right about who he was intellectually. He understood it. And we need to be very careful as we go through this book to read and understand how God is there in all the details. And we need to understand who he is as the God who controls all things. As you go through the book and read it, there it is, a ship going to Tarshish. How many ships were going so far away that as you look at the big atlas of the Bible, you won't find Tarshish on any of the maps? It's mentioned about three times in the Old Testament, but nobody knows exactly where it was. Maybe far away Spain. But to go there to a little port and find a ship going to Tarshish. He was fleeing as far away as he could. Nineveh was, Nineveh was over here, and he's going as far as he can this way. God prepared all of these things. He had a purpose. That great wind, I like the way the ESV has it. It says, God hurled a wind. It speaks of how, yes, there is this sense in which God prepared all of this and it even grew in intensity because God caused all these things and had a purpose. As you go through this passage of scripture, there's this violent storm, the raging of the sea. God is causing this. God has a purpose in it all. Even they're casting lots. Now, I wouldn't recommend that's how you find out the will of God. But certainly in this passage, the lot fell on whom? Lot. No. The lot falls on Jonah. That lot falls on him. They know he's the one. Now, as you go through this, they finally cast him into the sea. And what happens? It calms. God is in charge, in control of all these things. Then it tells us that he provides what? You want to discuss what kind of fish or a whale or 
but it says God provided a great fish. God commanded this fish. There, as you go through the passage, it, we'll go to chapter 4. He provides a vine. Verse 6, he makes it grow overnight. Verse 7, then God provides a worm. Now, uh, a worm. You know, we don't think God's in charge of worms. We had, I think, this last uh, week, uh, as some of the young workers, uh, Thursday morning, I believe they found some worms out in the courtyard, some green boogers, and they were the kind that eat plants, and reminded me as I looked at the picture that they, they took of those boogers, those worms. God commanded, appointed that worm to eat this plant so that it withers. All of this in God's control as we go through this, God provided even in that moment that vine that it covered and given him shade. Jonah, as he was waiting and watching to see what was going to happen to Nineveh, then the shade is gone. And God causes a scorching wind, heat, the sun. We know a little bit about the sun and its power here in our Arizona desert. I can Remember a, a couple people in our congregation who've had serious sunstrokes. I think my greatest memory of, of the power of the sun was when 19, wow, many years ago when I was 16, we hiked uh, my, myself with a, a man that was in great physical condition. Uh, Jerry Hasmir was his name and uh, he was 30 years old. I was 16 and we went down the north rim of the Grand Canyon to Thunder River. And I remember coming across what's called Surprise Valley, and uh, somewhere about halfway across, he just couldn't go anymore. No water, we were out of water, and uh, the thirst was upon us, and I remember that. There's not any big rocks, there's no bush, there's no trees, there's, it's just a Surprise Valley. At that point, we didn't know why it was called Surprise Valley. But I remember he laid down on the trail and I'm 16, he's 30, and I hear him telling me, go on ahead and later bring back water for me. And I looked at him like, I'm not gonna hour much further with six, seven miles more, it's not gonna happen. So I remember I began to kick him with my big military boots that I had on, just that you've got to get up. If you stay here in this, you'll die. And we walked about another 100 yards and suddenly we could hear the roar of Thunder River, and that put something in our legs to start moving and to make it there. The sun was something God caused to be baking this man's very life away. And so he's at the point of death itself. All of this to grasp something that God is in control of the sun to the worms. He is God over all. Isaiah chapter 45, good to read these words. I look forward to, to hearing a sermon I, in chapter 45, <coughs> important words there where it speaks of, of how he is God and God alone. Verse 5, I'm looking forward to when Pastor John will preach on this. I hope I live long enough. 
Psalms. So in chapter 45 of Isaiah. So here we are. Verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. He is in control of everything, not just the things that seem to be nice, nice, nice. He's in control of all things. There was even the very experience of Jonah was part of how God was going to show his compassion. It's so very important as we would come to this passage. Jonah's prayer ends, yes, with that great triumphant word of grace. Salvation is of the Lord. But there's one more verse, and it introduces the second half, really, the second half of this prophet's letter for us, or this book for us. And what does it say? Look at it with me. And the Lord commanded his control. The Lord commanded, appointed the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Wow. Not exactly what we'd want to start the most wonderful passage. But here is not only God's control, but God commissions Jonah afresh. There's something here of great importance. Commission to where? Last week we talked about how the Assyrians were such an evil group of people. They cut off other, their enemies' legs and watched them suffer. They decapitated babies' heads. There was the horror of all their evil that was so horrible. We even spoke, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit of understanding on, on uh, old Jonah that he, you know, would be like sending a rabbi there to, to Nazi Germany in 1940 to preach on the streets of Berlin. God's going to destroy Nazi Germany in 40 days. Wouldn't last very long, would he? Maybe, though, we need to probe a little deeper. There's something here more than just how evil the Assyrians or how evil the Ninevites were. The reality is there was something there in Jonah. He identified himself to the sailors. Do you remember? I am a Hebrew. That was his identity. And it was principle even above his saying about who his true God was. I am a Hebrew. We called him an anti-grace prophet because he didn't want the gospel to go to these Gentiles, these sinners. Now, we today have a story to tell to the nations. We have this amazing story of God's great salvation. Even during that time, God had raised up Yes, the Jews, the Israelites, yes, this even northern kingdom, he had raised them up to make known his glory to the nations. Psalm 96, verse 3, it might be good someday to make a big banner, declare his glory, declare his glory among the nations. 
Can we say that together? Declare his glory among the nations. That's what his people were about then, and that's how much, that's what we're about now. Declare his glory among the nations. That's the great mission that we have. We are to be commissioned, yes, have been commissioned. His experience, Jonah, now I think there may be something here, who knows, if someone spends three days inside a fish and comes back out, there might even be something of his appearance was changed. We have something of his, his uh, what we might call his very presence had something to do with as they heard him with that message in Nineveh. Was there something there that he was one who had experienced the compassion of God, the forgiveness of God? Was he one who was there who had been a disobedient runaway and yet he found God's amazing grace that he could say as a sinner as I am there was something even as he announced their judgment. Judgment should have been upon him. His presence, his experience, his body, God's compassion was written all over the man even though he was still learning about it. God ordered Jonah's life, even his runaway foolishness. God had a purpose in all that, what he suffered. Yet both Jesus and Jonah go into that abyss of God's wrath. And God brings Jonah out. God brings the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected out. There is a beauty there that as we read through the whole of the book, we have something so interesting in that there was this sorrow over his part of that plant that withers. Our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified upon a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, we read in Galatians and in the Old Testament. Christ suffered that curse in our place as we speak of that often. And though Jonah's sermon was just a few words that we read in scripture, there was something that came to those people that was that of repentance. Look in Jonah chapter three with me. And there we read Jonah verse three, obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation to, in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth 
Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So we have here an amazing picture for us. God, yes, we have in the New Testament how that was to be a sign for, yes, Israel. They had not repented for a hundred years or more. And yet, in a day, there was this repentance that came to the Ninevites. I would ask you to remember three things about the Lord and who he is that are very clearly given there for us. As you have in chapter 4, and we read before, three things to remember. First of all, we don't need a new commission today. We don't need a new revelation to obey the great commission that is given to us, that we are to go and, yes, disciple all the nations. We are to take that word of God to all kinds of people. And, yes, how are we to do that? We need to think as we had the challenge given this morning by Joel. Yes, we can bring in scriptures that we can see them sent out to others. I would encourage us as a church, as we have that guidance from the elders here at Cornerstone, help, helping and working with the deacons, that we as a church would be taking the gospel to our own community right here, now. Your neighbors, how do you have ways in which you can speak to them about the gospel. Are we just thinking of far, far away? No, we begin here. I'd like to make a, a strong, very practical suggestion. Get copies of the Gospel of John, nice copies with large print. Make them gifts to people and then talk to them about these things after they've read them some. I'd recommend to you also other uh, books that you can grab hold of. Here's one I would recommend the Undercover Revolution. What it is, it's a book that goes through the novelist of our last couple hundred years, and as it does that, it shows how bankrupt they all were and what they've done to our own culture. And then it speaks the gospel with clarity. An excellent little volume, The Undercover Revolution. I'd recommend you to get a hold of, here's the pundit's folly. It takes the book of Ecclesiastes and shows how the emptiness of life without God. An excellent little volume. Give it as a gift to a neighbor and then later talk to them about those things. Another one, the prodigal God speaking and bringing the emphasis upon, yes, the elder brother that never left the home, but he wouldn't come in. He didn't go after his younger brother. He wouldn't come in and celebrate when the younger brother comes for that reunion, that forgiveness. But we have an elder brother, Jesus Christ, who has come to find us, and he has sought us out. He's come to seek and to save 
that which was lost. We have an elder brother we can speak to them about. Here's a, a little volume in Spanish, El Evangelio, the gospel. Spanish-speaking people that maybe you can't communicate well with. But here's a book that gives to them the gospel in their own culture. Think of how you can spread the gospel now with those people that are around you. Because he is a God of great grace. We don't need a new revelation to tell us, tell my neighbors about Jesus Christ. We don't need a new great commission to suddenly tell the people in our own community that Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners such as we are. Secondly, remember well that there is a greater than Jonah who has come. That's what the scripture is constantly telling us. In the New Testament, over and over again, there's a greater than Moses, there's a greater than Jonah. Yes, he has come, Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. When people don't have that perspective, all of life is out of focus. So we are those who have this great, wonderful story that one who went into the abyss of God's wrath he was resurrected and he comes with life. Come to me and you have life eternal. There is a beauty to this coming to him. He's alive and I'm forgiven. We are those who can go to all peoples with that great message. It is good, it is clear, it is simple, it is powerful. It changes people. It is the word of God. And then Third, that God does have a people. Wherever we are, in all the earth, he has a people. That song of the redeemed. That, yes, he is the one who has redeemed, purchased to God, a people out of every tribe and nation and people and language. There is a purchased people out of. Not all people are going to be saved. There will be those who reject him always. Christ has purchased a people for himself. And we take the gospel to them in all the world. It's a shocking thing as you read about these Ninevites, isn't it? How they repented. I mean, it's kind of like, I think, Jonah, he knew God was gracious. He knew that God was compassionate. He knew that God would relent because he was such a compassionate God. He was shocked. These sinful Ninevites repent of their evil ways. The New Testament says they came to believe. They repented and that they will rise up and condemn Israel. They will rise up and condemn those who have heard the gospel and not believed in Christ. They came to believe and repent of their sins. We have that phrase. Now one greater than Jonah is here. Let's repeat that together. Now one greater than Jonah is here. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, we've got something that's far beyond. He's much, much, much greater, infinitely greater than Jonah and what message he had. What we have, it's beyond our comprehension, and yet it's simple, powerful. 
Jonah 3, 6, one professor of mine, I remember his carefulness with the Hebrew, he put this verse 6 like this, the message smote the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, set aside his robe of royalty, covered himself with sackcloth, and collapsed in the dust. Something powerful hit this man. And yet we have such a much more amazing message of grace today. We have the message. Their faith produced works. And that gospel that we have will transform people. So we have spoken this morning of that wonderful sense of God's control of all reality. And at the same time that he was commissioned afresh. And it was a gracious thing that God would commission him afresh. But last, God's compassion. In a sense, when we come to that, that whole chapter 4 is there before us. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? What does he get exceedingly angry about? He's saying this is evil, what's taking place. What was it? It's the verse before when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. What was Jonah's problem? I am a Hebrew. Somehow or other, we're better than. We are the people of God, the people God has chosen. The story of Jonah is not about a great fish or a whale or whatever you want to come up with. It has to do with God's compassion. That's where it really is. God's great compassion. This little masterpiece. God has compassion. There was this one thing that was evil to him, that God was compassionate and relented to destroy Nineveh. Jonah saw that theologically. We might say that Jonah, when he put together his theology of who God was and how he was, we could classify Jonah right along with Charles Hodge, you know, the great Princeton theologian with his three volumes, or we could classify him with, you know, Louis Burkhoff, who's Systematic theology was used in almost all seminaries, conservative seminaries, for so many years, or with old John Calvin himself. But somehow or another, he had never really experienced, in the depth of his understanding, the compassion of God himself. Wow. That's where we need to be. We need to put God and his great compassion at the head of everything and see who he is. So easy we can slip into, oh, this thing is greater than. Even our own nation, we can suddenly think and get our way of thinking that our own country, our own being Hebrew, our own people, being American, is more important than the gospel, more important than God's compassion for the others, for foreigners, for those who don't belong. I love my nation. I love my country. I love baseball. I love the 4th of July. I have read 
and studied and worked with our Constitution. One of the great signers of the Constitution, you know, the great Declaration of Independence, John Witherspoon. I have the five volumes of his where he speaks words to our nation, leather little volumes, published in 1804. One of those volumes speaks in such directness to our nation. If we don't repent, destruction's ahead. We love our country, but God speaks to us directly. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, whether it's our nation, politics, sports, work, family, even church, all these things will be added to you in their right order, in their right perspective, but we must have that vision of who God is and put him first and his kingdom. That's where it must begin. Without that, it'll be blurred. We won't see it properly. So we must begin with him as he is the one who makes everything else be in focus. Our nation has been greatly privileged. We have been given the gospel almost like no other nation in the history of the world. But without real repentance, destruction could be upon us. Oh, may God not give us what we deserve, but be compassionate to us as a nation. The Ninevites repented in a day. Oh, that God would bring repentance to our land and really do that work of grace to us. The book ends with those words. There it is. Should I not be concerned about a great city? Should I not be concerned about those <coughs> around me and have compassion for them and truly pray and plan on purpose? How will I take the gospel to those around me? Now, today, let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you'd help us as a church, help us as elders, that we would have the wisdom and we would have the working together, the planning, the working together as a congregation to see the gospel go to our own neighborhood, our own city of Mesa, to the gospel go to the, yes, the ends of the earth. But, oh, Lord, give us wisdom that we would work together as your people. Lord, help us to so worship you and live for you that it will be compelling to unbelievers to see the joy of sinners. Sinners, as we have sung already, I am a sinner through and through. Our only hope, O oh Lord, is you. And we ask, Lord, that you would so work in our hearts and lives that we would be rid of our self-righteousness. We would be rid of our self-centeredness, even as a church, O oh Lord, that we would love one another in such a way that others would see that love and know that you've sent Jesus Christ to work in our lives. That's our prayer, Lord. Work in us in such a way that we would truly be rid of being self-centered and self-righteous. Deliver us, O oh Lord, from the idols of sports and politics and so many things that seem to 
come upon us and we find ourselves worshiping those things, even family and church and activities. Lord, give us hearts that truly worship you. Give us a fresh vision of the beauty of Jesus Christ as a church, that we would be those who really know what compassion is, that we would experience it and we wouldn't be left with anger because of your working in other places and other lands. Oh Lord, give us something of a different spirit than Jonah. We don't know how Jonah finally responded, but Lord, we do pray that you'd so work in our hearts that we would respond in reaching out with your compassion to the others around us, and yes, even to the ends of the earth. Have mercy upon us, oh Lord, as a nation. Don't give us, please, Lord, what we deserve. Deliver us from civil war. Deliver us from the violence of the ugliness of this world. Help us to have hearts that seek first your kingdom and the righteousness of Jesus Christ first. And then we have that promise. You will give to us. You will add to us. You will provide for us all the other things that are needful. And we ask for, Lord, your compassion to descend upon us afresh. In Christ's name we pray.